Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comet. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already done so. Today's episode is about the Laith Maroof scandal. How it was possible that the federal liberal government funded and praised an individual with a history of making virulent racist remarks and funded him no less to provide anti-racism training. Maroof's nonprofit organization had collected more than $600,000 from the Trudeau government in past years, despite having made online remarks recently such as calling Jews bags of human feces, worthy only, I quote, of a bullet to the head. Now, while his vitriol targets Jews the most, he's made offensive remarks aimed at other groups such as black persons, indigenous persons, French Canadians, and he has targeted specific individuals too, like former liberal MP and cabinet minister Erwin Kotler. Looks like the man most in need of anti-racism training is the man the government has been funding to provide that training. I want to talk about this incident in depth, but I also want to discuss what it means more broadly for the world of anti-racism training and how government doles out such grants. Is this indicative of a bigger problem? Jonathan Kay joins me now, formerly of National Post. He's an author of a number of books, editor at Quillette, and host of their podcast, and he's one of the people who first drew attention to this disturbing and wild tale. John Kay joins us now. Hey, John, great to have you on the show. How are you? I am doing all right. How are you, sir? I can't complain. You know, this story, some of these stories, it's like they can be torqued a little or they need a little torque or people have to sort of read the details on it. But this one is just so transparent immediately that right away you're like, whoa, yeah, yeah. This, this stuff is not good. Yeah, and what's what's strange about that is it was sitting there in plain sight for months, and there was a guy, his name is Mark Goldberg. He's a telecoms consultant. Like, he's not a household name, uh, but he has a few thousand Twitter followers, and he he's the founder of, I think, what's maybe the biggest telecoms conference in Canada, or at least it once was. Um, and he was tweeting about this for months because he'd had run-ins with this guy, Latham Roof Online, and he was just absolutely shocked because he he knows where the bodies are buried at the CRTC, and he knows that this guy was getting fat contracts from the CRTC um, in the mid-2010s. Uh, he was purported to be a, a consultant on, on the telecoms in, uh, industry and grassroots community media, and he was just tweeting into the wilderness about it, uh, and he just had a thick thick dossier on uh, Maroof. And I remember looking at his tweets. I said, this can't be right. I mean, it's, it's too, it's too ridiculous that this has been sitting in plain sight for why well, it turns out years and no one's done anything about it. And, uh, and then I started tweeting about it and I, I helped Mark get the ball rolling on it. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's the opposite of the usual story, which is that you know, you've got some politician or other, and it you know, turns out like five years ago, he tweeted like a, an off-color joke or something, and then he deleted it, and then it's discovered, and right. just out of that little molehill, mole there's this gigantic mountain. Uh, but this is the opposite, where you've got this guy, um, an out-and-out anti-Semite, and I think some people have taken me to task because I haven't emphasized the fact he's also... A complete bigot in regard to francophones like he's just gone on these rants about how quebecers are all frogs and um i mean his some of his barbs are a little antiquated i haven't heard francophones <laughs> described as frogs for, for years even by bigots he's uh, a good old-fashioned racist maybe that's why people are surprised he's not i mean <laughs> yeah i mean look he, the guy's in his 40s he's he's almost as ancient as i am and in fact i know him i mean the reason i picked up on the story and maybe i was able to get the ball rolling on it is i i know him from Concordia. I, I'm from Montreal originally, and he was at Concordia, I think he started there around 2000, 2001, um, and I was covering the Netanyahu riot story, because there was a whole riot when Benjamin Netanyahu came to speak there in 2002, and Maruf was one of the guys with uh, the megaphone, and he was just complete out-and-out anti-Semite. Like, it was just, I mean, I, I've, I've spoken, since the scandal broke, I've spoken to his, his Concordia classmates from that time, some of whom are, are big time leftists, but are actually delighted to see him raked over the coals like this because they couldn't stand the guy. Um, so I knew I knew him from Montreal days. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons that I was able to help get the story amplified. 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny. To your point, you will hear these stories. Okay, candidate resigns, and it's because you know when he was a teenager on Facebook, he posted a gay right. slur, and then they're like, okay, is this right. a bit of overkill and so forth. Here, like out in plain sight, and and we're we're in this era where obviously things are hyper scrutinized, and and I think when one is in university or you do a job training program or what have you, they're always like, well, go back on your Facebook and make sure that, you know, you're not holding a beer in a photo because you're not going to get your job, all that stuff. So we know that happens. And yet here's a guy where, I don't know, maybe just plug the name into Twitter and this is going to show you something. Like, yeah, that's the big question. The big question is how did this happen? Well, so it it was a couple of reasons. Um, The first is that, um, a lot of the language he used in his uh, in his grant applications and on social media, uh, I mean, it, it's not quite a Jekyll and Hyde story because if you look at like the stuff he was saying to the CRTC and the stuff he's promoting with his so-called anti-racism training, uh, it's actually not that different from the just mind-blowing bigotry he was promoting on Twitter and other social media platforms. He would just change some words around. So like, in his anti-racism training, he would talk about like the malignancy, um, you know, of, of settlers and whiteness and all that stuff. And then in his Twitter, he'd just like substitute, um, you know, Israel for, for settlers or whatnot. It's the same language. It's just he got in trouble on the social media stuff because he targeted it at, at Jews and Francophones and stuff. And by the way, even when he was going after Jews, he was very careful to say like white Jews. Uh, or white supremacist Jews, or like he'd always add in a qualifier that would like help present it as a kind of woke kind of anti-Semitism. Uh, like, oh, look, I, I hate Jews, but I hate them because they're imperialist warmongers, not because, um, I don't know, they're money lenders or whatever. Uh, so that's one reason he was able to to get by is because there was this kind of like veneer of wokeness about his bigotry. And in fairness, this. I mean, a lot of wokeness actually has that veneer to it. Uh, also, the liberals are in power, right? Um, had it been Stephen Harper's government that was still in power from the old days, or, you know, I've tweeted that had it, you know, Doug Ford's conservative government in Ontario, it'd be a different story because then the media would run with the idea of like, look, evil conservative betrays its evilness by hiring this super evil um, anti-racism consultant who's really an anti-Semite. Uh, right. This shows the true colors of whatever, fill in the blank, Stephen Harper, Jason Kenney, whoever it is. Where, where's here? Trudeau's because... the victim. He's been duped by this guy. <laughs> yeah. How did this uh, yeah. guy do this to the liberal yeah. cabinet? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think, I mean, there's some people on Twitter who are saying, oh, well, this shows that Trudeau and the people around him are anti-Semites. I don't believe that at all. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I've, I've met Trudeau. I don't think he's an anti-Semite in the least. I, I think, um, I think it was just, uh, they got duped by his, his woke um, purportedly anti-racist uh, jargon, uh, which, I mean, like even in the best of times, a lot of this sort of jargon that trades under anti-racism is just impenetrable gibberish. And the, and he was using it as a smokescreen for actual bigotry. Uh, and I think they just got sort of um, taken in by that. And also, to be fair, uh, the, the Canadian Heritage Department in, I think it was 2020, they got all this money to do this to give to community groups for anti-racism projects, like anti-racism. You know, this was after George Floyd, so anti-racism was like kind of the big shiny thing for them, and um, and they just started shoveling it out. I mean, they gave eighty-five grants out, right? Um, and had to and, push them out quick, so maybe sure, scrutiny yeah. was minimized. Yeah, and you've got you know Pablo Rodriguez, who and he now heads up Heritage. He's he's from Montreal. Latham Roof presents himself, I think, from being from Montreal. He, he actually lived for a time in Point St. Charles, which is, I used to deliver pieces there. He's lived in, <laughs> Maruf has lived in Beirut for the last three years. So he got this anti-racism money uh, <laughs> living in Lebanon. Uh, he actually, he became a, a Canadian citizen in 2020. He was a Syrian citizen before that. So when he was getting all the money from the CRTC, half a million dollars, they were giving it to a Syrian citizen um, and an, an anti-Semite. But uh, when he got the anti-racism grant, it was a, around the time he became a Canadian citizen. Uh, and we know this because he put it on Facebook and also ranted at the time about how horrible Canada was. And it's an apartheid state. And look, here's my passport. Uh, and um, yeah, and so he was one, I think, I don't know if it's 85 grant recipients for the anti-racism program. Like you've got probably at the Heritage Department, you had a bunch of, I don't know, 20-somethings 
looking over, uh, I think they got something like a thousand applications for the slush fund and, and all these applications, it's the same jargon, it's the same stuff. And, you know, you've probably got Rodriguez who's from Montreal, Montreal writing. Uh, and you know, they want to dole out the cash in the usual liberal geographically strategic way. Um, this guy spoke the right language. He's BIPOC. Uh, he's, you know, his application's full of anti-racist mumbo jumbo. Um, he comes with a CRTC pedigree because he's gotten all this money from the CRTC. So why not? Here, take some money. Go do anti-racist things. And actually, more than anti-racist things, the guy <laughs> was going on a six-city anti-racism tour to teach broadcasters, which I guess, I mean, we're podcasters, right? Like we're, I guess we would be the target audience. He's going to teach broadcasters about anti-racism. And he did, I think, at least two of these town hall things. I think he did one, I think it was at Halifax he did it. I think maybe he did Montreal, might have been Vancouver, but he still had, he hadn't yet done Toronto, Ottawa. He hadn't quite yet done Calgary. And Ottawa was going to be the big one. It was going to be like this two-day anti-racist jamboree that, um, that he was going to lead. Um, and that's that's been cancelled. Um, Do we have any sense of, of how these went, the ones that already went down? Like, if, if, so has anybody fairness, made any public statement? I've, I've, I saw it. So, um, the there was a Facebook on the group's Facebook page. They had a video. I forget which one. I think was it Halifax, maybe. And to be to be fair, because uh, Maruf, whichever one it was, is Maruf was speaking, and I think he was like the MC. Um, and he, it's not like he went on some anti-Semitic rant. Like the guy's not a complete idiot. He, he, he oh, and he, sorry, I know he did it in one in Vancouver because UBC has now had to apologize for hosting it. So yeah, so he definitely did. I think he did Halifax. I think he did Montreal, and I think he did Vancouver. And I think the Vancouver one might also be online. And from the footage I've seen, he got up and it, it wasn't like um, like a Borat thing, like now we must attack the Jews. Like it was um, a just typically tedious uh, rant about uh, how everything is racist. And um, to anybody who was in that room, it would have sounded like any other uh, like liberal arts lecture that they would probably receive at UBC, to be fair. So right. he, he, I, I don't want to pretend that, oh, look, he got all this money and then he gave anti-Semitic uh, presentations uh, in, in the three uh, public events he did. Was it one I, of those things he, that, you know, the person who most goes out and preaches, you know, the ills of alcohol or whatever, it's because, you know, they, they are or were, you know, an alcoholic or many comparable examples. And this guy's probably just like, well, man, you know, if people are half as bad as I am, like we got a problem in society. We got racists everywhere. You know, I, you know, I, I know I, the problem. I, I mean, I, I got to speak out about this. I mean, look at me. I, I have, so, look, so the phenomenon isn't always crazy. Like, you know, when they bring former gang members into school to teach kids about gang life. Uh, like, I think, you know, that's, that's, I mean, this isn't an object of satire, but I think it's a good thing, like, because it's credible that these people are, aren't actually gang members anymore, right? Like, often they're middle-aged people, and, you know, they're, I'm sure there are stories otherwise, but, like, and same thing with Alcoholics Anonymous, when a guy gets up and says, I've been sober for 17 right. years, the person speaks as an authority of an alcoholic, and he, he comes to terms with the fact he's an alcoholic, the anti-racist industry is a little bit different because when you scratch the surface of a lot of these people, uh, like when they get into fights on Twitter, um, like you often see, <laughs> I, I don't want to generalize, look, an, sorry, anti-racism isn't, you know, it's, it's a big thing. And I'm sure there are people who are extremely earnest and sincere about their anti-racism, but there are some pretty hilarious examples. And Maruf is one of them uh, of, you know, you doth protest too much where, uh, they read from the psalm book of anti-racism, but as soon as they get upset about something, and in, in Maru's case, it was Israel. He just, every time Israel is mentioned, you can see on social media, it just absolutely loses his mind. Like they kind of take off the mask and it was just, oh, wow, okay, you're not an anti-racist. You're just a big bigot who's weaponizing the language of anti-racism to enable your own like sociopathic attitude toward your uh, your enemies. There's a pitch just, here. You, you got to pitch him. You got to be his manager agent or something because he can keep it going. He can even get more money. And now oh, he he's the reformed gang member and he can tour high schools and everything. He can say, look at these tweets, look at the awful things I've said. And then he can talk right. about why it's wrong. I think he can yeah. do even better moving Well, forward. he has a better gig coming because, uh, and I guess he's already doing it, um, because I listened to some of his podcasts and whatnot. And he, 
I don't know how lucrative it is, but he's been on on several podcasts in the last few years, including the Sputnik podcast for uh, Russian propaganda. Um, he now lives in Beirut. He's an absolute apologist for the Assad regime in Damascus. Uh, so like one of his podcasts is about how uh, the Kurds are rubbish. Um, and he is obviously very useful to Russian propagandists on Sputnik. He's appeared, I think, on uh, Iranian propaganda shows, um, I think press TV. And I, I'm not, I'm absolutely not worried about this guy. He's, he's going to make a mint, um, but he's going to do it in a more authentic way. Like he's not going to have to pretend he's an anti-racist. He can, if he's paid by the Assad regime, like the Assad regime doesn't have a lot of anti-racist uh, guidelines when discussing Jews. And so I think um, he, we're going to really see the full Latham Maruf unleashed. Um, I should also say that his wife, uh, her name's Gretchen King, and I don't mind saying her name out loud because it's public. It's She's the other officer on this CMAC company they set up. It's a two-person show, right? There's nobody else. It's, it's just the two of them. Technically, yeah. So CMAC, so the, the liberals have made a big song and dance about, oh, we didn't give it money directly to Maruf. We gave it to this CMAC. This, this is their like, holding Community company. Media Action Center, right? Right. And CMAC, the officers of it, uh, him and his wife, and the phone number listed officially is, is Laith's cell phone number. And the address listed was like their... I think it was their house. Like, I mean, it was, it's like when I set up my own corporate entity, I have a company called John K Media Inc. for tax purposes. Um, I, I think, I don't know, my wife is one of the directors maybe, but it's like that level of uh, piercing the veil from corporate law point of view. Um, but his wife, and again, I, the reason I said her name is it's, it's in the public documents. I, I'm not doxing her or anything like that. Uh, she, with Canadian government money uh, through... Um, the agency that funds academia. She is now in Lebanon uh, pursuing a PhD about uh, Palestinian media, and, and that's paid for with your tax money and mine. Um, again, they've lived there in Beirut three years. Uh, wait, wait, financing. We, give, we finance international PhDs? Oh, yeah. So she got she got her funding, I found. This is something I tweeted about. Uh, so it's it's the same agency. God, what's it called? Shirk? It's just, it's just an acronym. They, they yeah, the Science and Humanities Research, yeah. Research Council. I thought that was only if you're doing it at a Canadian institution, though. Nope. She, wow. well, I don't know the rules yeah. um, because I'm not, they're not giving me any money for my groundbreaking research in, uh, <laughs> in whatever it is I write about. But yeah, no, she, I found documents. She has at least one grant um, that she is applying toward her studies. And it's actually listed on the grant that she's at. She's at the American University in Beirut. Uh, so both of them have been on the Canadian dole. Uh, CRTC, uh, Pablo Rodriguez's Heritage um, Department's Anti-Racism Fund, and uh, academic subsidies. Uh, yeah, so they're full, fully paid lifestyle in Beirut, thanks to uh, our tax money. Wow, the plot thickens. We'll be back in just a moment with more with John Kay. John, you were saying earlier about how his his actual pitches and classes that he does, his anti-racism training that Laith Maroof is doing, using phrases like the the malignancy of settlers. This is the sort of stuff he's talking about. How and then you said it kind of like his tweets, he just substitutes some words, you know, he says malignancy of Jews versus malignancy of settlers, based on, and I know you've done a lot of a lot of research into the different workshops and classes that are that are being done under the rubric of anti-racism training or unconscious bias training, those other phrases. How consistent is what he's doing with what's being done more broadly in the industry or being done by others? Um, so again, I don't want to tar the entire diversity training industry or anti-racism industry or whatnot with the same brush because right. There are diversity trainers out there who are great and they come to the workplace and they talk about things. They tend to emphasize inclusion, which is like, you know, how do you include people, you know, mothers who have young kids at home or people who right. are neurodivergent and stuff like that. They're not, they're not all obsessed with like white supremacy and stuff like that. Or the whole just like, don't be racist, be respectful of everyone. Like, I don't see anyone having an issue with no. that sort of being reiterated in the workplace and, and during a human resources session. It seems like there's been a bit of mission creep though. Of late, even the well, unconscious bias training thing. Yeah, I think yeah. people probably, I, I think people who are not, or at an age where they're generally not being exposed to these classes because they're, you know, they're too older, like baby boomers, probably think they support this stuff, but aren't even entirely sure what's going on with it. 
Look, I, as a joke once on Twitter, I said, um, here's my, here's my diversity and inclusion training program. You know, lesson one, don't be a dick. Uh, lesson two, being racist means you're a dick. And that's like, that's the end of the lesson. Like it's, uh, no one objects to the idea that you shouldn't like tell sexist jokes around the water cooler or stuff like that. Like we're not, we don't live in 1970 anymore. And I think people get that. Um, but what you see is, especially in the more, call it ideologically ambitious spheres of diversity consulting, uh, you see a lot of really, it's, it's, I'm not even sure it qualifies as offensive because it's, it's extremely, it's almost religious. So um, I tweeted out, someone sent me the, I think it was 132 pages. It was the PowerPoint presentation for the diversity training sessions done by consultants. I think they were called Hummingbird Consultants. This was out in BC. It was a BC government entity. I didn't share the name of the entity because it's a small entity. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Um, so I got sent the 132 page PowerPoint presentation. And um, this was diversity training. It was two sessions were given actually for, for all the staff at this uh, important BC uh, entity, the entity of the BC government. Uh, and among the claims were like, like white people are highly individualistic, whereas indigenous people uh, care about each other and are like collectively minded and very caring. Um, capitalism is evil. Uh, and again, the, the capitalism is evil thing is a really strange one because like these diversity training companies get tens of thousands of dollars for, uh, for their training. So like they themselves have an amazing capitalist gig going on. And when I, when I get sent these PowerPoints, because for some reason I'm the address people send this stuff to because they know I'll tweet it out. Um, there's always like the obligatory slide about how you have to be like anti-capitalist and capitalism and racism are inextricably rooted. Um, and then you also, there was a whole slide about like all the qualities that are attributed to whiteness, like meaning bad qualities. And it's, it's always things like perfectionism, punctuality. Uh, in this particular one, it's just, it was a weird one. It said having an agenda. Um, <laughs> and, and often like the qualities they're discussing as being tied in with evil whiteness are like the qualities that you associate with professional workplace culture. And it's, the effect of it is like incredibly racist not, oh, I wouldn't even say racist against white people. It's racist against non-white people because only white assuming, people are punctual. You know, that's I mean, the it really is like that. Yeah, no, but it, it is like I mean, I and you can these people who send me this stuff. Um, they're often like very frustrated people because I mean, I like I do this stuff for a living. I just kind of expose this stuff, but they are often like middle managers in some government department making ninety thousand a year, trying to pay their mortgage. Um, like sort of punching the clock until, you know, they hit retirement at age 60 and they can't say anything. And so they have to sit there in these anti-racism training sessions and just like listen to this mind-blowing bullshit and no one can say anything. Um, now, someone finally did say something. So in this case, this BC, so when I published it, when I published, I, I had a whole thread, maybe you guys can, could link to it on the splash page for this episode. Um, one of the most amazing things is they had a slide where they said that Canada's residential school system inspired the, the Holocaust. Um, and, oh. and, and, and this is, by the way, this is like kind of this, this meme that, that you often see in progressive Twitter, where it's like they, they sort of draw this very um, <laughs> attenuated and dubious line of causality between the indigenous, um, the residential school system in Canada, which was, of course, legitimately terrible. Uh, they, 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 they try and argue that it somehow there's a direct line between that and the slaughter of 6 million Jews during World War II. Which like Hitler heard about it and he was like, oh, tell me more. It's, it's not, a good yeah, idea. It's, it's like, um, you know, this, I don't want to misrepresent the logic of it, but it's, it's, they draw a line. It's not just like Hitler, you know, came to Canada and was inspired by it. It's nothing that ridiculous. But anyway, they try and argue this. And so they had this slide that argued about like how horrible is the residential school system in Canada? It inspired the Holocaust, um, and they 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 overlaid it for laughs for some reason with a picture of Mr. Bean. You remember the Mr. Bean show from decades ago? Is this like kind oh, of yes, uh, the chicken on the head thing? 
I remember it, it was sort of like um yeah uh there's a new one he's got a new show on netflix right now but it's it's not exactly sophisticated humor right like nothing against <laughs> mr bean it's a but it's gag. like it's a sight gag sort of lowbrow kind of uh comedy shtick show and the juxtaposition of that image with like a discussion of the holocaust and this nonsense claim that like residential schools caused the holocaust kind of belittling it, well I actually, I didn't see it as any more or less ridiculous than all of the other slides that, because I, I think I put up like 10 slides and I said, well, this is, this is nonsense. I can't believe people are being taught this. But uh, Jewish groups that are active in BC saw it and actually took the issue up with the BC government. And it's amazing what gets attention and what doesn't, because like the nine other slides, it was like, you know, capitalism is racist, uh, white people are punctual and that's terrible and all this other stuff. Which to my mind was like <laughs> equally ridiculous and equally offensive. Like you're allowed to say those things, but because, and again, I'm, I'm Jewish myself, so I, I, I'm not trying to argue that like there's some sort of nefarious um, uh, influence being exerted here. But I, I was shocked that of all the slides, like that was the one that, uh, you know, Jewish groups started emailing me and saying like, we're going to take this up with the BC government, and which they apparently they did. Um, and so sometimes behind the scenes, you, you, you do get action, but I'm never, it's always unclear to me. Like I've been in this business for a long time. It's always a mystery to me what kind of stuff will get attention. Um, and, and sometimes you find something outrageous and no one cares. And other times, like we were discussing earlier, you find some, like, you know, some guy makes, when he was in high school, he made a gay joke or something. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, you'll never host the Oscars again. Uh, and it's, and that's it. Like, and, um, John, you said a really interesting remark though, when you're talking about the, the 60 something bureaucrat waiting at retirement, they can't say anything. So they know it's BS. They know it's problematic, but they don't want to raise their hand. Did that happen perhaps with the Lath Maroof thing where people are like, this is crazy. But then again, so was that other thing. And so was the thing before it. And nothing happened. And in fact, Jim got in trouble for talking about it. Yeah. So I'm just going to be quiet. And everybody was watching this happen. And they're like, I, I don't know, maybe this is how this, this sector works now. So we just got to let him do his thing. So it's interesting you say that because, um, so Anthony Housefather, who is a liberal MP, to his credit, he broke ranks with his party and told the aforementioned Mark Goldberg, who's the telecoms guy who, who really, who, broke this Latham Roof story. He he emailed Mark because Mark inquired about it. And we now know that this liberal MP named Anthony House, Housefather told uh, Ahmed Hussein, and Ahmed Hussein is the liberal cabinet minister who runs the housing and also the diversity and inclusion portfolios. It's basically the diversity minister. Um, that So Ahmed Hussein knew about this in July. And then uh, a whole month passed, and this guy, Laith Maroof, stayed on the government payroll after the, the diversity minister knew about it. Uh, and we know he knew about it because uh, Housefather, the Liberal MP, told Mark Goldberg in July, I've, I've notified Hussein and his team, and they will get back to me about what they're going to do. What they did was nothing. And then uh, I started tweeting about it and the story broke and some independent outlets started reporting it. And then even the Canadian press felt obliged to report it. And even when they reported it, they, don't, they didn't report it until they waited, until they had a reaction quote from Ahmed Hussein, who by that time uh, released a statement saying how horrified he was, although he didn't mention Latham Roof's name. So there was a whole month when the liberals knew about it and did nothing. And again, I don't think it's because they're anti-Semites. I don't think Ahmed Hussein is an anti-Semite. I think it's because they're sort of it's grubby, risk-averse politics where they're saying, how do we take the, the least damage on this? Because um, if we come out now, um, well, you know, we take a hit, but maybe there's certain like Arab or Muslim groups who might be pissed off at us, um, you know, maybe extremely like militant factions of those communities. I, I don't mean to suggest like the whole community embraces sure. Lake Roof, just the, just the opposite. I think they're probably disgusted with them. Um, and I, by the way, I should say, I don't even know Maruf's religion. He, he, he's ex extremely anti-Israeli, but I don't think I've never seen him to my knowledge, like go off on, on Islam. Like a, a, he, for all I know, he could be like Druze or Christian or, um, I have no idea. Right. 
Um, and, and I think they hoped it would blow over. And then when it didn't blow over, they were like, oh, God, what do we do? And then actually this week they pulled a really interesting maneuver. So this guy, Housefather, he tweeted something really interesting. So the liberals have now gone all in on denouncing Maroof. So for like a month, it was like, we've never heard of Maroof, like no story here. But now they've like switched and they're all in on anti-Maroofian hate. And they, he's, he's like a symbol <laughs> of all this. But, but if you look, Housefather actually tweeted, this is so huspidic, he tweeted out, Yes, I, I, you know, the liberal, as a liberal, I denounce Maroof with like every fiber of my being. And I now call, I now call on all 338 MPs to denounce Maroof. So wait a sec. You oh, you're got, a racist if you don't, you random conservative no, no, so MP who happens just, to be I mean, on vacation right now, so can't do it. It's insane. Think of the chutzpah here. The liberals did this. The liberals gave this guy $600,000. The liberals did nothing when they were notified by it. It's all the liberals' fault. But suddenly, now that the liberals have decided that, like, they're taking ownership of it, some guy in the Bloc Québécois has to, like, you know, tweet from his house in the Laurentians, like, oh, yes, I denounced this guy, Latham Roof, who I'd never heard of if, it, if the liberals hadn't given him $600,000 for this, this nonsense. Like, suddenly, it's <laughs> the onus is on people who never gave a cent to Maroof to denounce him because the liberals have found Jesus and, like, they're just all in on denouncing the guy. This is a learning and opportunity for us all. As Trudeau would say, online harms bill needs to be introduced to regulate the internet. And if you bring Pierre Polyev in as prime minister, I mean, they got rid of Luke right. Maroof. He could bring him back. He could bring but 20 it's, more in. It's the same thing as the blackface thing where, um, I mean, this is, I guess, ancient history by now, but it's been a couple of years where Trudeau, all these, they're still quite hilarious to look at, all these photos of Trudeau and blackface and I forget which newspaper, I think it might have been the Star. And the headline was basically like a learning opportunity for all Canadians to confront racism. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember looking at it and my jaw just dropped. Like, it's not a learning opportunity for all Canadians. It's a learning opportunity for one guy who dressed up as a black dude. And his name is Justin Trudeau. So there's this like extremely clever maneuver. And I think it'll work um, because everyone's just going to line up to because um, they don't want to be like seen as agents, agents of Marufianism, um, where you kind of like judo style, um, kind of absorb the kinetic energy of the charge against you and kind of like flip it onto your opponent saying like, I am more anti-Marufian than thee. Oh, and great. then your opponent is like, oh, well, we'll see about that here. I'll just, you'll see how, how fervently I, I, I support your new position. Uh, it's a really clever tactic. The liberals are really good at it. Uh, they did it with the blackface thing to some extent. I mean, it was, it was hard. It was just the images were so ridiculous that it was, it was difficult. Well, I'd, um, let me read. I, I want to, along those lines, I want to get your take on this National Post story saying Ahmed Hussein's department is now going to conduct, quote, an extensive review of the funding mm, that is being distributed yeah. through the anti-racism strategy to ensure that no additional funds are redirected to organizations or individuals who promote hateful content. So they're open to the idea that maybe there are other such instances and they want to root them out. But then, John, to your point about malignancy of settlers, um, a lot of training involving, uh, you know, I see this in the school boards, for instance, uh, white fragility, that kind of mm. stuff, the, the punctualness you were going on about. The question is, are they just looking for the overt uh, nasty words or, I mean, here's the fundamental disagreement. I don't think, as we said, you, you want to, teach people about being respectful of everyone in the workplace. Nobody's got an issue with that. And that's probably originally what these grants went for. Do we need to be doing widespread government enforced workshops about white fragility? And yet yeah. it is Ahmed Hussein. What, what's going to happen when they see these reports? I don't think they're going to root those out. So if you look at the list of the, I think it was 85 grant recipients that I think it was 2020 and maybe it was a hundred grant recipients under this anti-racism program. Um, I think a lot of reporters have been pouring over those lists, like looking for other groups like CMAG. And to be honest, like I looked at those lists and a lot of it was just like, you know, some indigenous group out on a reserve wants to like, um, I don't know, Im improve local education. Like a lot of it looked like really worthy stuff. It didn't, it wasn't like a whole bunch of Latham roofs. And a lot of these government programs, it, what's interesting is that I think if you talk to people in government, you'll find a lot of the groups 
that get funded through these programs are probably going to get funded anyway in some through some program or other hmm. because they're actually doing good community stuff. Um, and I think when I look at the list, a lot of was really like grassroots indigenous groups. Um, but from a liberal point of view, you don't just want to shovel money out the door to a group. You want to shovel money out the door to a group under the auspices of anti-racism because that makes you an anti-racist and uh, then you become an ally um, and then you get to use the allyship badge and you get the key to the allyship washroom. Oh, they would have been applicable and, for a grant just under like a community grant, say, that 100%, didn't even yeah, have any and, sort of progressive yeah. agenda or feel good component to it. A hundred percent. And again, like I just, and I know this because I've just researched some of these other grants and Latham Roof, you know, I'm willing to concede this, the liberals, it was an outlier. Um, however, some of the largest groups, the uh, largest grants were to groups that, to my mind, like have just very sort of dubious, um, like social media focused stuff. Like one of the, one of the groups, I think it's called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, I, I don't think there's anyone like Latham Maroof who works there, but it's just like, if you look, if you go to their website, it's just a lot of platitudes about everything is racist and a lot of talking points that seem very similar to what the Liberal Party says about conservatives and whatnot. That's the kind of stuff that needs to be cleaned up. I, I have no problem with money going to to legitimate grassroots, like indigenous groups. But a lot of it just goes like, you know, Canadian Anti-Hate Network, it's, it's run by a lot of white people uh, who are essentially weaponizing sort of fashionable slogans about anti-racism to pay themselves salaries, um, you know, from from taxpayer money. To me, that's a problem. And it's, it's not just anti-racism. Like a few days ago, Trudeau announced this $100 million, like, it's not LGBT, you're not allowed to say that. It's 2SLGBTIQ+, I think is how you say it. And, and in fact, part of the money is going to um, tell people that they should say 2SLGBTIQ+, instead of LGBT. It's and, so meta. And this, it's very meta. And what I object to about that is like six months from now, there's going to be a new term <laughs> because there's all these like three-spirited and four-spirited people who are going to object to it. And then all of the posters and promotional campaign around the 2S campaign uh, is going to get torn up. Uh, and, and that to me is just an absolute waste of money. If, if you want to give money to some like grassroots LGBT group that's like, you know, giving people advice about um, like healthcare or something like that, go ahead. Like this is what government's for. I mean, I'm at heart. I'm like kind of a big government uh, bleeding heart type. I just don't give money to people who are just um, to propaganda. Um, I mean, Latham Maroof happens to be a particularly malignant kind of propaganda, but any kind of propaganda, like that's, that's not the role of government to give money to groups like that. So it's basically your take that we don't have a, a broader problem necessarily in how we're doing anti-racism discussion, outreach, government funding, it really is a situation of a few bad apples. But but the I but think, the system yeah. of the whole scrutiny thing is is obviously to be welcomed. So I think there definitely is a problem when it comes to the sort of very cultish way that anti-racism is taught, uh, especially in universities and stuff like that. I don't necessarily think that's Trudeau's fault. I think this is an import of American race-related um, ideological fads uh, that largely come through social media. And there's, you know, if, 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 if the Trudeau government were voted out of office tomorrow and were replaced by um, a polyavirian conservative regime, uh, and, and all of this anti-racism funding, they got rid of it. I don't think that would change anything in universities. In fact, it would be the opposite because in the United States, you saw a spike in this like critical race theory stuff, intersectionality, anti-racism, um, you know, Ibram Kendi who gets $20,000 an hour to give lectures on Zoom, like all of that stuff spiked when Trump came into office because it was like, oh, there's this whack job in who's the president, we need to uh, educate people about how racist everything is. I think you would get that in Canada, in the schools, universities, social media activist groups, regardless of who's in office, and you might even get more of it if they're a conservative. So I think with Trudeau and his liberals, I don't think they are the engine of this like mm. hyper-wokeness. I think they are profiteers of it. They recognize that it's, it's trendy. They recognize that they can get on the bandwagon and get earned media and hashtag support if they like create an anti-racism fund. Um, and, and 
like to them, I think they're, like I say, they're, they're, they're profiteers of it. I don't think they're the ideological engine of it. And it's the same thing with this LGBT stuff. And in fairness, like corporate Canada does the same thing. Like I went, you know, my local Scotia, Scotia bank, you like the entire window is covered with like this new ad campaign they have is like, even when it's not pride season, we are welcoming to, you know, all letters of the alphabet and all numbers on the number line. And, um, and they've invented like new symbols to represent just like the many identities they welcome in their bank. And this is a bank that makes billions and billions of dollars. And, you know, for them, this is a marketing opportunity. Uh, and five years from now, when the cultural cycle has shifted and this is no longer faddish, those posters will all come down. And it'll be something else. So I don't see the Trudeau government as being much different from like what Scotiabank does. Um, it's, you know, this is a, um, you know, a self-interested maneuver to take advantage of ideological fads among upper middle class white people primarily. That's well, how I see it. And that's what I find so interesting about the Scotiabank example, because I remember 20 years ago, uh, friends, gay friends in downtown Toronto saying, oh, I don't go to Pride anymore. Pride's too corporate. 20 right. years ago. The pride is too corporate thing. They were saying it. And now it's like, I think this whole phenomenon happens, I guess, external to the gay community. I imagine the the VP or whoever at Scotiabank responsible for this is is probably a gay or lesbian person, Uh, or or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe there's like zero connection to it. And and yeah, to your point, it's just a gesture thing for for the upper class. uh, Well, look, the LGBT community, I mean, not to generalize, there's there's a lot of letters in the alphabet and it's like any other community. It's, um, you know, you can't can't make generalizations, but generally speaking, the politically active LGBT community in places like Toronto is it's a very it's a wealthy community. Uh, you know, when I first moved to Toronto, I moved to Cabbage Town, which like there's there's several different gay areas in Toronto, but that Cabbage Town, at least then and maybe now, was like I used to say this is where the gay tax lawyers live. Um, you know, people with expensive dogs and um, you know, doggy baths with Tuscan tiles and beautiful homes. And it's a great place to live then. And I think it's a great place to live now. But if you are a bank executive, you want these people coming to your bank. And totally. banks are basically all the same. Like, I mean, I, I bank at TD and I don't, I'm sure if I switch to Scotiabank, it'd be the same experience. So like, there's not that much variation in the banking experience if you can get an edge on your rival by having like more letters in the, you know, LGBT acronym you put up in your store window, if that gets, you know, estate management funds coming in from like wealthy people, great, do it. Uh, and again, just I, liberals, the NDP, they're sort of in the same position as like, how much daylight is there between the liberals and the NDP on most issues? Not much. Um, so a lot of it comes down to like, who's waving the bigger pride flag, uh, and the liberals are in power. So they have the power of the fisc. And, you know, this week we heard that they're waving a hundred million dollar pride flag that might get them a few more ridings in downtown Toronto or, or Montreal or Ottawa. And that's kind of how politics works. So it's nice Um, to hear that after you reviewed those 85 or so federal government grants, uh, connected to this, that Leif Leith Maroof was a bit of an outlier. But acknowledging that in other institutions, uh, university settings, is there a greater review required? I mean, like I alluded to, I'm not crazy about the fact that, you know, my kids are in the Toronto school system and and I see this stuff that goes around with the unions and that that the teachers are being sent. And there's a lot of this, again, it's not the let's all get along stuff. It's the very accusatory fostering division um, unconscious bias and white fragility stuff that's going yeah. on there. And that, that seems much more problematic. It's much more problematic. Um, and it's not, so it's the Toronto district school board. So I don't want to make this, I know this is like a national podcast. Right. I don't want to make this parochial. I think it's indicative of other regions. It's indicative. And, and again, it just, what I'm about to say is going to sound parochial because it's, it's the Waterloo, uh, regional district school board. It's Simcoe, it's Ottawa area. Uh, it's Peel. Um, it's, uh, Halton. Uh, and and it's Toronto. And if if you're not from the Toronto area, I've just kind of named like a lot of big school boards in Southern Ontario that uh, in in the last year or two, there's been appalling scandals involving the kind of pedagogy that uh, that that is being featured there. And uh, if you're listening to this and you live in these writings, I should say that in October, school board elections are taking place. And you should investigate the trustees who are running because one of the reasons a lot of this, um, really cultish, anti-racist nonsense um, 
like I'm talking about, you know, the stuff you, that you were referring to, you know, settler, white fragility, and all this stuff. Um, one reason that's taken root is because to give credit to a lot of these progressive activists, they've taken the time to yeah. to run for these like low profile positions like school board trustee. And a lot of these outfits are run, essentially run out of the NDP campaign office. It's they're not NDP formally, but they're they're very much they very much piggyback on on existing NDP uh, political machines on a local level. And to give them their credit, they took interest in this stuff when people like me just weren't. I mean, I I never thought about running for school board office. It was a lot of work and very little money. Um, and now people are paying attention because the content uh, in these curricula has has gotten so wacko. And, and by the way, a lot of immigrants are paying attention because a lot of these people didn't move here from like Nigeria or Philippines or Brazil. So their kids can be taught uh, a lot of stuff um, about like how they're guilty of genocide and all this stuff. So you are starting to see people pay attention. Uh, and that stuff to me, that is, is a more important fight to me than whatever Trudeau is throwing money at mm. because... Um, you and I, we have a, a choice about what party to vote for. However, if you're a working class parent who can't afford private schools, you do not have a choice about what school to send your kid to in most cases. And if that kid is coming home with his head full of nonsense, um, that's a problem. And to me, that's a much bigger problem than the virtue signaling that's being done by Justin Trudeau and the people around him. So we saw a couple districts in the U.S. have a backlash recently with school boards, largely, I think, fueled by critical race theory being too invasive. And it was very interesting that a lot of people leading the charge were, were not white people. Um, yeah. It was non-white persons who had a lot of problems with this stuff getting into the system. And then the other was a, a backlash against uh, over-the-top COVID craziness and, and restrictions yeah. for their kids. And I don't see a similar push right now in Canada, but do you, you feel it's kind of going to bubble to the fore maybe? Um, so I think it's going to go behind the scenes. And I actually have very mixed feelings about some of those protests in the United States. So for instance, you said that some of these people protesting are not white. Uh, one person I would highlight is Asra Nomani. Um, yeah, she's good. Uh, she, she's really good. And she led the charge... Uh, in regard to Thomas Jefferson High School, which I think at one point maybe still is the most selective um, public STEM high school in the United States. It's in Virginia. And there was, I actually I haven't kept track of it closely, but there was a plan to, to dilute their entry requirements for basically in order to further affirmative action. But it was, it was one crazy aspect of that was this weird affirmative action plan they had would actually increase the number of white students at the expense of Asian students basically so that they could also get more Hispanic and black students. It was totally crazy. And Asra is an example of somebody who's absolutely not a white person, but is enraged by this stuff. Uh, but of course she gets accused of being a white supremacist because she's not uh, uh, sticking to the, the proper progressive ideological line. That said, I do have some mixed feelings about some of the stuff, because if you look at the videos, you've got these like really angry people screaming at school board officials, showing up at school board meetings. And then you've got state, legislatures and state governors who are legislating saying, oh, you can't teach this and you can't teach that. Right. You can't teach critical race. I actually, I'm not crazy about that solution too, because that to me is like another kind of ideological intervention. Um, I don't want to ban any books. I don't want to ban any books. And the problem isn't so much that's like this, this, this boogeyman called critical race theory. Um, you know, I, I've written about this. I, I studied critical race theory at law school in the 90s and at the time, critical race theory actually made a bunch of sense. You know, it was talking about how um, the classic example is about how laws against crack cocaine were much more severe than laws against powdered cocaine because crack cocaine was, at the time, primarily a black drug and powdered cocaine was... Wall Street. Yeah, Wall Street, you know, stockbroker, uh, suit and tie drug. And critical race theory would say, even though the words black and white don't appear in the sentencing guidelines for American drug laws it's still racist. And that's a good point. And that was kind of one of the things critical race theories, theorists were talking about, but they were talking about principles. It wasn't about exercising some original sin from the breast of an individual human being who was either a, a sinner or absolved on the basis of the color of their skin. So like this idea that like every white person is secretly a racist and um, you know, you have to work on your white supremacy till the day you die, which is like this very creepy 
Calvinist religious concept, like that stuff was not in critical race theory at the time. It, it was a more commonsensical creed. So when, you know, a Republican governor gets up and says, you know, we have to stamp out any reference to like to race or critical race theory or intersectionality, like that makes me uncomfortable. And it also makes me uncomfortable when you, a bunch of conservatives show up at like the offices or even the homes of educational officials to scream at them. Uh, I don't want that either. And, and to the extent that that is not a huge feature of public life in Canada, I think. Well, I'm, conservatives I'm in that. the U.S. are now as shameless as like the Antifa radicals. Well, but they, in they've, the US. they've always they are, been like how Trump is as shameless as the, some of the crazy left politicians. 100%. We just don't have that here, and I don't think the right would ever get into well, that same same. I, I guess maybe, maybe some are historically back decades ago. I'm old right enough now. to remember, like when I went to law. So I went to law school in the United States in the '90s. I'm old enough to remember the Reagan era and the aftermath of it. And when you talked about censorship of arts and academia, it was a right wing phenomenon. Um, it was like, you're not being patriotic. And we, we saw shades of this in nine 11. Um, you know, remember, right. uh, well, cancel uh, culture was a right wing thing. A hundred percent. And, 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 and it will be a right wing thing again, because culture is cyclical. And when, when the conservatives start imposing their own cancel culture, uh, which I guess to some extent they are in the United States here in Canada, five or 10 years from now, because the cultural pendulum will have swung the other way. I'll be right there with the blue-haired pronoun people protesting that and saying that that's wrong because I'm against cancel culture and censorship on both sides, and I've lived long enough uh, to see it from both sides, and I'll con will continue to see it from both sides because the way the culture wars work is when one side is winning, they try and shut, they try and leverage that power to shut down the other side. It's it's a timeless phenomenon. The progressives are doing it now, but when the shoe's on the other foot. It'll be the conservatives who do, who, who do it, and I'll be just as unpopular then because I'll be I'll switch allegiances to the other side, and all my Twitter Twitter followers now will all call me a sellout. Um, but I'm okay with that. It's kind of the way I roll. Jonathan K. Great conversation. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Full comment is a post media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.